Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. A big hello from me. This is a spotlight episode of a podcast of one's own. In this format, we aim to bring you insights from the researchers who work at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership or other academics who are friends of Jewel. My guest today falls into this second category. I am joined by Dr. Andrea Elner, a lecturer in Defence Studies at King's College London, who specialises in gender, war and security. She is also a board member of the International Society for Military Ethics in Europe, EuroISME. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. We are going to talk about the war in the Ukraine. And my first question is, the traditional stereotype of war in people's minds is that men fight and women flee. How true is that in the conflict in the Ukraine? From the start, the media narrative on the war has been extremely gendered. Even UN women, they very soon commented on the extreme genderedness of the way in which the war evolves and is also narrated, portrayed in the media. Partly, this is the doing of external media. So international media are just as guilty as maybe even guiltier than the Ukrainian messaging, because you heard journalists on various world services, global newscasters, talking about women being portraying the essence of motherhood by keeping their children safe and keeping them entertained. And they were deeply moved by just watching what one journalist I heard called motherhood in action. So it all came down to the caring mothering and while there's nothing wrong with that, also a victimization, and it's got stuck on the victimization of the portrayal of women. The second quite important element is that gender roles, whilst there has been much progress in Ukraine in society over the last sort of five, six years, and particularly after President Volodymyr Zelensky came into power, he or was elected. There have been has been progress in changing gender stereotypes and, and, and recognizing women's public roles and much more varied roles, but there's still a very strong conservative undercurrent, which is linked to men do the fighting and women do the caring. Once the war escalated, and we should not forget that the war for Ukrainians started in 2014. So they've been fighting in the separatist areas against Russian forces for years now. And this is just an escalation. So let's break it down from 
the stereotyping to the actual facts on the ground. What percentage of the Ukrainian army is women? About 15, but just over 15% of, of the Ukrainian army is now women. But they've only been since 2018 permitted to apply for almost all combat roles. Before that, it's taken a while until women as combat support or combat soldiers were accepted and were acknowledged as fully-fledged member of the armed forces. So a lot of women for years participated under contracts or they volunteered and fought, particularly in the separatist areas, without really having a proper status. They might have been affiliated, but they didn't have full soldier status, which for all sorts of reasons could have become a problem for them, for example, if they had been captured. And they're not really recognised as veterans either. They're now becoming recognised, but again, that's because of long-term lobbying with the support of civil society organisations and organisations like UN Women. And do you think that expansion of the number of roles that women can play in the military, is that being driven by changing perceptions of gender roles or is it just being driven by military need? I mean, we know when we look around the world that there are nations that have for a long period of time fully integrated women into their combat capabilities because their assessment of their military needs has been that they basically want to field every able-bodied person or every young person into a military role. Is that what's driving this change? That is certainly part of part of the story. Normally, militaries, as you as you say, whether that's been happening over a hundred years in Australia or in the UK or in the US or New Zealand and Canada, or in one fell swoop, as for example in Germany, where a court decision forced the German armed forces to open up roles or combat roles to women, and they just opened everything. There is always an associated rationale of we need more people. We need to we need to expand our recruitment pool, and we need people who are not necessarily only the brawny fighters, but also people who do brawn and brain. If the wider economy is drains away people who have these this mix of skills then of course you have to increase your recruitment pool if you want to fill your ranks and in the ukraine it became clear that there is a need to enhance the country's defenses and so over time that was one of the reasons but the other reason was very much this project the lobbying of women that i talked about earlier who wanted women wanted to join the ukrainian armed forces and they had been playing a part but mainly in clerical roles, in in the traditional women's roles. And they weren't happy with just that role. They just wanted to do more. So it's it's a dynamic that came from both sides. And it's true to say that in the army, in the Ukraine, in the defence forces, that there's universal conscription for men, but women are volunteering. It's a slightly in-between status. So women can be called upon to be conscripted, but that needs to be a separate decision. But women have, for the last two years, been required to register as someone with military skills. And because they are on the register, they can then be called up if need arises to, to do this. But so far, the government has not really gone that way. 
So we do have a significant percentage of the military capability being filled by women, but it is also true to say, isn't it, that disproportionately those who have left the Ukraine are women and children. Can you speak to us about what the conditions are like for them? Recent estimates suggest that more than 10 million people have been forcibly displaced and have fled to neighbouring countries and that 90% are women and children. What circumstances are meeting them as they've fled? At first, things were, of course, at borders, extremely difficult, but all the neighbouring countries were extremely well prepared and they mobilised a large part just of the population who voluntarily came to the border with food and provisions and just tried to help as best as they could, took people in, women and their children. Often women don't only have their children with them, but if elderly people or relatives have agreed to come along, they will also have elderly relatives coming with them. So the caring responsibilities that the women take on are quite significant and complex. Women coming to particularly Poland and Moldova have actually started to identify over time because because we don't know when the women and children and their relatives can go back. Most women want to go back. Some are going back, but many stayed. And then the question is, how do you settle? How do you find a way of sustaining yourself? And when you have children, how do you school them? A proportion of the women who left are school teachers and work in nurseries. So they then started setting up schools or working in schools because there's, of of course, also a language issue. Like while some people probably speak the neighbouring country's language somehow and somewhat, they might not be proficient enough to do any meaningful learning in that language. So having Ukrainian language teachers available is, of course, a huge bonus. So that things are beginning to settle. People who are further afield probably have bigger issues. The question of how to get to the UK has not been very satisfactorily resolved. So a lot of people in the UK who have immediately said, yes, we would like to give shelter to refugees from the Ukraine, have not been able to do so because visa processing and and lots of administrative hurdles have been standing in the way. But there's also a rather problematic other development, and that is that because it often works via apps to connect people from the UK with Ukrainians, it's been that single men would contact Ukrainian women and offer them to give them shelter here, They were not necessarily vetted. There's a huge concern that some of the messages were not veiling problematic intentions very much. So there's a serious concern that people traffic her straightforwardly, but also private men will abuse the need and the dire straits in which women find themselves. Because we know from other conflicts that women are particularly vulnerable when they're trying to flee from conflict zones. It's obviously distressing to hear about that and to contemplate that women who, with their children, are fleeing such desperate circumstances could encounter sexual exploitation in that manner. 
What's the circumstances for the women who have stayed? What do we know about what's happening on the ground with sexual violence for women who have stayed in the Ukraine, either because they've mobilised into the military or they've just determined that they would not want to leave or they can't leave because of elderly relatives? A lot of women chose to stay because they wanted to work in a broadly humanitarian context and they are doing a lot of work there. But a lot of women also had to stay because they didn't have connections or ways out or chose, as you say, because they wanted to take care of their family and relatives. We know from places where Ukrainian forces retook areas from the Russians that atrocities happened that both targeted men and women and that civilians were not only tortured, but often basically executed on the spot. And that sexual violence happened in many of these places. Some of the images we've seen suggest to me that we would be wrong to not also acknowledge that men get raped. And we forget sometimes that men can also be subject to sexual violence. And we know that from Bosnia and Herzegovina, very often, this is important for peace building afterwards, those men don't get very much help. But the majority of victims that we know of tend to be women for all sorts of reasons, either because individual soldiers are allowed in quotation marks to boost their morale from that over to a deliberate targeting with genocidal aims to try to humiliate the men to whom the signal is sent that their men folk haven't protected their women folk. That is a horrific picture to contemplate. And of course, all of what we've been discussing means that there's the need for a humanitarian response within the Ukraine. Uh, there are obviously many stresses and strains on its healthcare sector. Can you talk to us about the work that women are doing on the ground in humanitarian relief, in healthcare, and is that challenging traditional gender norms? Well, caring sectors tend to be accepted as areas where women can become publicly present and have jobs because caring at home can be extended into caring opportunities elsewhere. 80% of the health and care sector in Ukraine is staffed by women. That was the situation with which Ukraine has gone into this escalation of the war. Many of the women stayed because they privileged their professional ethos over their own personal health and safety. So, yes, women are working both in the care sector, but also with civil society organisations to try to run the show as best as they possibly can and prepare for the future. And let's pull the lens back a little bit now and actually talk about leadership styles and images of leadership. Uh, we've seen a real clash of leadership styles during this war with President Putin, the strong man dictator on the one side, and President Zelensky, the everyman on the other. What do you think this conflict is telling us about images of masculinity and leadership? It's an interesting question because I don't think it's been aired and explored enough yet. We should try not to fall into the trap of gender stereotyping ourselves. Therefore, I think we need to look very closely at the context within which these images of masculinity are created and promulgated. 
And for both, we need to look at the longer perspective, particularly for President Putin, we need to look at where his leadership style sits in the wider context of Russian political history, but also Russian political culture. There is a very deep-seated assumption in the Russian people when you read analysis, but also when you talk to some Russians, you find the analysis really on the ground replicated or or the, the evidence on the ground. There is this belief that Russia needs an authoritarian leader. Russia needs a strong man. And if you look at what happened after the Golden Horde had been through, authoritarianism and imposition of rule and order has been a continuous theme in Russian imperial history, in Soviet history, and now in post-Soviet history. President Putin's persona after he came into power, he was this strongman. He was this person who projected for a decade and a half this, I can keep you safe, and people flocked to him. And it took a while until people understood that there was another side which was emerging, which was the controlling side, which was the, the reduction of freedom of speech, the, the constraints imposed on any budding thought that a democratic, more liberal part of life in Russia might be possible. Now, President Zelensky is interesting because at first nobody took him seriously because he was a, com- a stand-up com- comedian. I think he really made his mark with his inaugural speech where he talked to all Ukrainians and basically tried to forge a Ukrainian national identity based around the we're all Ukrainians now. When confronted with the Russian invasion, he combined the caring, I'm not going to desert the ship. He was offered by the Biden administration to be evacuated to another country. And he said, no, I need to stay here. I need to be on location, I need to be with my people, which sends an incredibly powerful message, which forges this unity, which backs people's sacrifices, determination, willingness to take risks and to defend the country and to fight for the country's independence. He's gradually introduced a more martial image. And I wonder whether that also has something to do with the fact that when the election campaign happened, he was being challenged by the political opposition about his credentials as a defender of the nation. In order to keep the country together, he has to please two broad constituency, and that is the more sort of liberal, westernized part of the population, but also the much more conservative nationalist part of the population. And I think so far, he's working this divide quite well and is trying to appeal to both. So the masculinities are contrasting, but I think there is much more to why they come across so very differently than just the gender perspective. It's the the wider context that we need to look at as well. And then my final question If we make the assumption, and of course we don't know whether or not this is going to come true, but if we make the assumption that at some point there are meaningful dialogues around peace and ending the war, will women be included in those and does it matter? 
It matters hugely. I mean, okay, I would say that, but we have evidence that it matters hugely. We know that women participating in conflict resolution increases the likelihood of peace deals lasting for more than five years by 20% and for more than 15 years by 35%, which is huge. The problem is that they tend to be sidelined. We know this from many conflicts where men take the formal roles. They take the formal roles because they're already in formal positions of power, because if the government and whatever other elements of, of governance are in place is dominated by men, then men will talk to other men. Mediation teams are often just made up of men. Women, when they've started to say, well, you know, where are the women's needs? Why are men negotiating how women's health needs, for example, or women's economic involvement, how that should be facilitated or regulated, how resources should be distributed? Why should men only decide about this? Then very often women have reported hearing, well, you don't need to be part of the negotiations yet because we're talking about security issues first and we're not talking about women's issues. We're just talking about men's issues. Now we know, and there's plenty of research that's coming out, that if women fighters are involved, if women politicians are involved and if civil society representatives are involved in peace negotiations, that leads to a much greater acceptance of the peace agreement that is eventually arrived at, and hopefully it will be in this case as well. But you need a mix of people. You can't just have one or the other. Sometimes women end up in peace negotiations or have ended up in peace negotiations without really thinking about a particular role as women. They become important because they will often have pre-existing networks, and this is why I said at the start, it's really important to acknowledge the work women have already been doing before the war and are doing now during the war, because this is where there's one source of their ability to make meaningful contributions to peace negotiations lies. If they have good connections to local communities, they will hear from local communities what these local communities need. They will be the link between other civil society organizations. And it's not just gender based, it's also class based and ethnicity based and LGBTQI based needs that these women can have connections to. And that can then be fed into the formal peace negotiations. If that happens, then sometimes peace deals that come out at the end of this may not necessarily be written in the language and tick all the boxes that an international organization like the UN would like to have ticked in order to have a fully inclusive peace agreement. But what we know is that reform proposals, particularly in the socioeconomic and political sort of realms, that women include, tend to be implemented. And if all this is written in a language that the local population understands and the peace agreement then gets subjected to a referendum, it's much more likely to be accepted because whilst it may not have the language that the globalized gender community or peace building community would necessarily recognize as fully comprehensive, if it goes 90% the right way and is accepted, then the implementation 
phase is much more likely to also be successful and reforms are more likely to actually be implemented. And that is a major contributor to the longevity of peace agreements that include from the start, from before the negotiation starts, that include women. And so, yeah, women have to be part of the picture. And we should note that the uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister in the Ukraine are both women. Absolutely. And there are members of the Ukrainian parliament, also women, and they are active. And some are already, most of them are already very much involved in doing whatever they can, either by mobilising international support, by visiting supportive countries or fighting themselves, being having joined the military themselves and everything in between. So absolutely, there is no shortage of women who can help. Thank you for this conversation. It's obviously not an easy topic. It's one that's at the forefront of all of our minds as we watch the continued coverage of the war. And I know many listeners will have been thinking about women in the Ukraine, women who have had to leave and what the prospects are for peace in the future. So thank you for a fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. Podcast of One's Own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash giwl and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at giwlkings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you